It don't matter what I try I just can't win and I don't know why There's a fork in every road I pick the wrong one and then I go American loser, yes I am Disenfranchised from everything well, I fall up and I fall down An American loser the day I was born Hey, welcome back to another episode of American Loser, all right? In a culture obsessed with winning here in America, we are focused firmly on second place. A couple of the weird things, maybe the uh, the disgraceful things, the scandals, if you will, in American history. Uh, I am your host, K.P. Burke. I'm a comedian out of New Jersey. And uh, with me, as always, is my co-host, my handsome Dilf of a father, Lawrence Burke. How are you? Hey, hey, how we doing? All right. All right. I'm very good, man. And uh, we're over here at a shared universe studios. Our pal Ming Chen's behind the uh, the ones and twos for us, taking care go. of business. Very happy. The main man. I'm, I'm just glad you're back, Ming, because we did the episode last week. Um, I, I was on the road. I was doing Florida stand-up gigs. And uh, I know you. You know there was some quality missing. All right? It's fair to say? I, you guys sounded great. I'm not going to disparage, uh, you know, your 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 um, Florida connections. No, the um, sound was great. I was just super drunk the entire show. So <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I mean, that that being inebriated can can at times enhance a podcast. Right. So, <laughs> right, right. So you never know. It was. It was. You took a shot, and uh, you know, much like a musket blast from you know a lot of British soldiers. Uh, so you, you you missed. So it's okay. Like, <laughs> We had yeah, a uh, right. yeah, the drunker still, I get, the better I sound. Right? Also true, but we had a fun time with that. But uh, if you're uh, not familiar with the show, what we do is we tackle some of the the weird, uh, the dark chapters in American history. Some of the stuff we're not exactly proud of. Okay, so losing second place is what we call it. But uh, last week we covered Osceola, right? And a couple episodes earlier we covered Aaron Burr. Okay, so we have loosely mentioned what we're going to be tackling here today in the Aaron Burr episode. But Osceola, we got uh, lit up a little bit. We was People were missing you, LP. You weren't on that well, episode. Well, I'm sorry, but, uh, you know, although I'm a fan of uh, K.P. Burke comedy, uh, for me to go down to Florida just to do the one more episode of Osceola, that wasn't in the cards. I'm sorry. But right. <laughs> unless, unless you want to supply transport transportation for me but uh yeah it was it was missed but uh we're back so here we go couldn't help it man i was uh down there on the road we had a good time with that episode it was very cool here but we're going to come back with our most scholarly effort yet okay <laughs> now this one's interesting uh we're going to cover something known as tammany hall okay uh ming do you know anything about tammany hall the name sounds familiar, uh, I, but I'm not going to embarrass myself and uh, <laughs> trying to take a guess at all the details. I'm going to let you do that. Well, that's like when my cousin Kelly, who's uh, an English teacher, she uh, we asked her what the rapture was, and she goes, that's a type of music, isn't it? So, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, Tammany Hall, everybody's heard of it. We're covering – this is our, our big topic here. Uh, this right away, just uh, off the top, if you didn't pick up on the fact, the title will indicate that it's going to be a three-part episode. But for the next three weeks, we're going to break down the history, start to finish, of Tammany Hall, which is the most corrupt political machine in the history of the city of New York. Do you know how fucked up you have to be to hold that <laughs> that's one right. exclusively? That's, that's, uh, that's really setting the bar pretty high to be the most corrupt in New York City history. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, they named it uh, – first of all, Tammany uh, comes from – it's named after uh, Tamanend, who was a Lenny Lenape leader, uh, the Indian tribe in the area. Uh, who is referred to not an actually canonized and church-recognized saint, as you pointed out to me, but Tamanend was known as the patron saint of America because he had such peaceful dealings with William Penn, the guy who went on to uh, go ahead and create uh, Pennsylvania. Right, one of our very early, early, early uh, colonizations, if you will, is in in Pennsylvania, absolutely. Absolutely, and the William agreement Penn. at the time, yeah, because Tamanen thought that they were good people. He goes, yeah, you guys are never going to, like, chuck batteries at Santa Claus or anything, right? You're good people here in Philly. <laughs> right. There you go. We can get along. But uh, he was known for his uh, his peaceful dealings. He was very uh, uh, accommodating to the uh, the European settlers. And in return, William Penn actually had a great reputation with the Native Americans. You're not going to find the uh, atrocities that we covered in the, the Custer episode. That's not going to take place on William Penn's watch either. Pretty good guy. So – now, uh, that being said, in, a, uh, in his honor, they went ahead and they uh, created this uh, organization named after him. And they're naming it after uh, Tamanend, again, the leader here, who is kind of in the Pennsylvania area, but also a little bit of a South Jersey guy. So I believe if you're the patron saint of America, 
and you're down in South Jersey, whatever you decide, is it pork roll or Taylor ham? <laughs> That's right. You get, the, you get the deciding vote. We go with that. That's, <laughs> That's good right, enough right. for me to settle that there bet once go. and for all. <laughs> Absolutely. But uh, in his ire, uh, I'm sorry, in his honor, rather, a society was founded using his name and his reputation of honor and peace. Uh, it was a group known as the Sons of St. Tammany. And those groups started be appearing uh, beginning in Philadelphia as early as 1772. Now, when did America start, Dad? Yeah, well, the official date was 1776. But so even before the American Revolution, uh, they've got organizations um, set up or society set up in his honor kind of a thing. So it's a, the patron saint of, of America. And he was, he was just a good guy. And um, that whole thing wasn't just to the Philadelphia area. There, there were... Um, his honor if spread far and wide. Actually, there's a uh, um, a parish within Louisiana that's a, a t- Saint Tammany. Although it's the only parish in Louisiana that's not named after an actual saint, it was just an honorarium <laughs> that was placed upon him, uh, Saint Tammany. Well, the the saints down in New Orleans, as far as I'm concerned, there's a uh, Saint Michael, and then everything else is just Drew Brees. So. <laughs> All right. <But. laughs> Um, now, by 1798, a prominent New Yorker, Revolutionary War hero, and American Loser episode feature, Aaron Burr, started to realize the potential of uh, the group in New York City, which was founded on May 12, 1789. Okay, New York City. That's the, the first big one in New York now, the Tammany Hall or the Sons of St. Tammany. All right. Burr realizes the uh, group's potential and begins using it as a political machine. Lawrence Patrick Burke, what is a political machine? Well, a political machine is just uh, an organization that um, are single-minded in making things happen their way kind of a thing. So they're going to make sure that, um, you know, if you vote for us or vote the way the machine wants you to go, um, we're going to be able to provide jobs for you, perhaps government contracts, perhaps government positions. It's just an organization that... um, they're doing whatever they can to, uh, we will we'll put air quotes around it, but influence the voters to uh, go the way that they want them to go. So what you're saying is that Aaron don't, Burr— Don't call it graft or, or <laughs> anything along those lines because uh, that would certainly paint a bad picture. But, yeah, that's it's pretty close to a graft situation. So there. you're telling me that Aaron Burr wanted to create a political machine as powerful as Katy Perry. <laughs> That's impressive there, man. Well, um, so now we know what a political machine is. And uh, Burr, who famously spent most of his career, as we covered in in one of my favorite episodes, so listen to that one if you haven't yet, um, spent most of his career feuding with Alexander Hamilton. Uh, They feuded over pretty much everything. They didn't agree. There was uh, federalism versus democratic republicanism. There was whether or not you should get shot in the chest in New Jersey in a duel. (laughs) You're right. Burr had different opinions on that one. Well, banking, of course, was always a biggie. Well, the banking was huge because the banking, as we covered in that episode, uh, Burr was able to slide in the uh, the Bank of Manhattan, right, which was supposed to be the Manhattan Water Company uh, that wound up – like he completely lied about what it was all about, got it approved – and then they scooped in there and they got um, to compete with uh, the Bank of New York, which was funded by Hamilton. Yeah, even that, even with that, it was a, a civil service project, if you will, in that they were trying to put um, water lines and, and upgrade the, the city infrastructure, if you will. And then he just was able to slip in a, a bank to fund the whole thing. And it just happens to be run by Mr. Aaron Burr. So, so now that's the Bank of Manhattan, which merges later on with Chase. Okay, so Chase Manhattan Bank is Aaron Burr's bank. <laughs> right, okay. the, the, roots, so, the roots of which, yeah. Hamilton is number one on Broadway, but Burr's running the rest of the city. Okay, <laughs> every ATM, go. I feel like, is a Chase Manhattan. Follow the money. But uh, so now he has to counter Hamilton has a society, right? Hamilton has his political machine, his followers, if you will. It's known as the Society of the Cincinnati. Okay, so the, they talk about Burr. Burr was a hard ass, little quick tempered kind of a guy. I like to imagine that he finds out about the society, uh, Cincinnati, the Society of the Cincinnati, and he sits there and he just goes, "Oh yeah, well I'll start my own political machine. It'll be just as good as yours, and you won't be allowed to be in. You there know, you screw you guys. That's right. It's a private club. So now he uh, he goes ahead. He sees the potential for these Tammany fellas. And in the election of 1800, as covered on that uh, aforementioned previous episode, last time we're going to talk about that here. Everything else is new information. Uh, Burr is able to swing the election via Tammany Hall to get himself made Thomas Jefferson's vice president. 
It was it was that political machine. It was uh, one of the deciding factors that put um, Aaron Burr in as vice president. They're making things happen now. They got exactly Absolutely. what they need here. Absolutely. Now, uh, in 1802, just two years later, Tammany would begin one of its first and longest lasting feuds with, guess what? The Clinton family. <laughs> Which Clintons? Yeah, not Which? Bill and Hillary and all those ones. These are different Clintons, but Clintons nonetheless. So uh, DeWitt Clinton, which you can just tell you want to punch this guy in the face by his name. All right. <laughs> and if you Google him, Ming's got his picture up on the TV right now. I mean, he looks punchable. So, <laughs> Right. Yeah. It's just got an arrogant face about him. Oh, yes. I believe you missed a spot. Mm. <laughs> yeah. But uh, DeWitt Clinton was the nephew of George Clinton, who was the first governor of New York and the creator of Parliament Funkadelic. <laughs> Really? I didn't know that. Uh, the godfather of funk, as it was. <laughs> okay. But uh, no, uh, different Clinton on that one. But he was the first governor of New York, and uh, he was an older guy around this time, and he did not like Aaron Burr. And uh, so he decided that he was going to leave his political animal of a nephew, DeWitt, who was of a similar age to Burr, to become his chief rival for power in New York City. Right. Send in the young blood. Exactly. You know, I can't handle you, but this guy can. Right. So, uh, DeWitt wait a minute, minute. are we talking about a creed and a creed too and uh, <laughs> all that kind of stuff now too? All right, the uh, next generation? It pretty much, yeah. The sequels, they, uh, they never do end here. But um, now DeWitt would become the mayor of New York City and he started appointing his friends and his family with positions all inside of his administration, limiting the power of Tammany Hall through what is known as a spoil system Lawrence Patrick, for those at home, what is the spoil system? Well, the spoil system, again, is, is similar to a, uh, a political machine kind of a thing in that um, after, if, if you pledge your allegiance, if you will, to our, our political machine, if we win uh, the election, then you're going to get some civil service jobs out of the deal and your, your friends, your supporters, your relatives, everybody's going to get a, a little uh, piece of the pie, if you will, at, at the end of the thing. Uh, the whole thing is um, kind of opposite of a merit system, where a merit system, you might be appointed to a job simply because you have the qualifications, you have You've got the toolbox, if you will, to get the job done. So this is Where, archaic then. That we've gotten rid of this completely now. There's no spoil <laughs> yeah, system yeah. There's anymore. There's no spoil system anymore. <laughs> no, no. No, no. Uh, that really, uh, um, you know, say what you will, that, that's been around for forever. You know, it's just the nature of politics. Um, it was kind of limited uh, in 1883, but that's years from what we're – what we're about to launch into right now with the with the DeWitt Clintons. I mean, it, the DeWitt Clintons was a family-run political machine going against the um, the uh, um, Tammanys. So, yes. Now, so the Tammanys are interesting because they're almost um, they're not an aristocracy in a family sense just yet. No, they are, they're not. They're, they're an they're, animal. They're they're machine. leaders and shakers within the community, but uh, they're not. Um, you know, there's no matriarch or patriarch kind of a thing. It's not a family-run operation. It's just a lot of like-minded uh, people that are trying to make things happen their way. So you got uh, the Clintons who are setting themselves up as the Kennedys in New York City, if you will. Um, Tammany's power is limited now during DeWitt's mayoral reign, and Burr's popularity in the city is declining due to his killing of Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> yeah, well, right. that, people kind of frowned on that, you know, and you that's right. Lock her up. <laughs> when the vice president is out there not only hooking and jabbing but trading shots with people, that's uh, – and, and killing them. You know, that uh, – people frown on that. Uh, he was uh, a fascinating guy, that Aaron Burr. But um, now, like we were just saying, so when you're dealing with DeWitt, Clinton, you're dealing with the Clinton family. When you're dealing with Tammany, you're dealing with a group known as the Sachems. That was the, the chiefs, if you will, the uh, – the wards, uh, in a sense, as they'll be called later on. But uh, Sachem comes from the Algonquin word. So a little bit of cultural appropriation here, taking that Native American culture and making it our own for our political machine for there this week's go. episode. There you go. But uh, the Tammany Sachems, who are kind of the, uh, the bosses, they agree to meet with DeWitt after they start distancing themselves from Burr because Burr is becoming more and more unpopular. Um, yeah, essentially, Burr is to Tammany what Jared is to Subway. <laughs> Okay, that's what we're doing. Also, Quiznos missed opportunity. I loved Quiznos. Quiznos missed opportunity for you guys. All you had to do was come back uh, with a, a campaign that just said Quiznos. We ain't fucking your kids. 
we're losing sponsors, but we're gaining fans. Um, <laughs> there you go. So now, uh, DeWitt agreed to meet with the sachems, and all they asked, all right, because they, they needed, um, they wanted to consolidate their power. These are all Democratic Republicans. At the end of the day, the DeWitts don't get along with uh, Tammany. I'm sorry, we keep saying the DeWitts. DeWitt is the man. It just is very disingenuous of us to say the Clintons, right. because there's there's too much uh, parallel in modern times with that. So, uh, DeWitt is a uh, he needs Tammany so that they can conjoin their power and go ahead and uh, fight off. Uh, the Livingston family, which was uh, led by former New York City Mayor Edward Livingston. Very powerful family in its own right. And they were backed by the governor, too, on this one. So what you want to do is you want to make sure that what you had uh, a hold on, you kept, and then you were able to expand from that. But you don't want to lose the shit sure. you already have. So what winds up happening is uh, all they ask for, they say, hey, we'll support you against the Livingstons with the full power of the Tammany machine. All you got to do is stop referring to uh, – first of all, you have to recognize Aaron Burr. As, um, as a Democratic Republican again. You got to stop your smear campaign against him. And you have to stop the smear campaign against Tammany, where every time Tammany comes up with an idea, he goes, oh, that sounds like a Burrism to right. me, which is essentially like, you know, bringing Cosby into it. Oh, we don't, we don't want black comedians here because of Cosby. You know right. what I mean? You can't, you, gotta, you have to have a little bit more diplomacy with that shit. But uh, so they agree to it, right? DeWitt says, sure, no problem. Need you here. Let's do this thing. And then he has no intention whatsoever. No, he's just he's just blowing smoke. Scumbag, you know? It makes sense that he got into it. Can you believe that even back then you still couldn't trust the Clintons? <laughs> oh, Kev. <laughs> uh, not that anybody else is doing much better, let's be honest here. And uh, the, the later on stuff, you're going to see some trends towards uh, making fun of some other current political figures as well. But uh, that being said, um, Tammany finds out about this. And they lose their mind, all right? They realize they're about to get played. They pledge now for the Livingstons and support them with the full power of that Tammany machine, where it's almost like a Game of Thrones thing here where you, you betrayed us, okay? And now we're going to go back up whoever. It doesn't matter. You're if, dead to me. Oh, yeah. It doesn't matter if they're in our best interest or not. You betrayed us. So Now, Tammany holds strong anti-federalist positions, but even their rival Democratic Republicans, who are like the Jeffersonian-type people, uh, they begin to disassociate from them. They're like, all right, yeah, I, I agree on some stuff. It's kind of like um, when uh, you're a – I'll put it this way. There's some good people out there that are Philadelphia Eagles fans, all right? <laughs> Not all of them are eating horse shit. So. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, those guys are just crazy. So um, now 1806 to 1809, due to public complaints, Tammany starts getting cracked down on via investigations, embezzlement, and corruption. And it was absolutely rampant, uh, rampant is the word I'm trying to say there. Uh, one sachem, a guy by the name of Benjamin Romaine, all right? Not a popular time for Romaine here in America either. Yeah, no. <laughs> a lot of people had their salad interrupted with uh, the Romaines. <laughs> uh, a funny comedian friend of mine had a, a good joke. She wrote um, – I, I, I can't remember who I want to attribute it to. Uh, but she said a funny joke where she goes, uh, America, you can't have Romaine. Uh, okay. <laughs> that was it. We're just good with it. But uh, – Anyway, um, Benjamin Romaine had been acquiring land without having to pay for it. Now, I don't know. We talked on the ride down. I don't know if that's public land that he was acquiring. Well, I would think it was, yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't his to, uh, to be selling, but somehow or other he acquired this, this property, and he certainly grabbed the whole of the proceeds of it. Well, uh, following that scandal, uh, they realized that the Federalists made their move. They're like, oh, look how corrupt these Democratic Republicans are. And the Federalists won the state legislature. But Tammany, they didn't learn shit from this defeat either. And I'm like, oh, let's, let's try to fly right. They actually organize themselves into a deeper meeting where they make a friend list and an enemy list inside the club. <laughs> All right? <laughs> so they are not good at being organized at this point. Um, one of the first interesting characters to try to go up against Tammany is a guy by the name of James Cheatham. All right? Not my pal Eric Cheatham <laughs> growing up. James Cheatham whose role was uh, known as the state printer. That was a job How's that, though, for a politician to have a last name of Cheatham? <laughs> Oddly, Cheatham, not necessarily a politician, and he was trying to blow the horn, if you will, on the shit Tammany was doing. Yeah. So Cheatham wasn't a bad guy. But uh, Dewey Cheatham and how? Exactly. Um, so now uh, he is writing about Tammany Hall's many crimes and conspiracies for the popular paper, The American Citizen. Okay? Uh, Tammany had Cheatham, Tammany Hall, that is, had Cheatham removed from his post. Okay, so they still had a little bit of muscle around here. Cheatham protested this and brought it up to his mentor, DeWitt Clinton, who he was a good friend with. Right. Goes up to him and says, hey, man, Tammany just had me fired from my job. 
Here's the funny thing, though. The Federalists are running shit in New York right now. And DeWitt needs Tammany in order to try to get his control back as a Democratic Republican. Take it back from the Federalists, right. Uh, so he doesn't do anything. He doesn't say – he doesn't get him his job back and Cheatham feels betrayed. And he is very angry about this and begins speaking out on DeWitt's many conspiracies. Ah, that Tammany's bad, but let me tell you about this DeWitt Clinton fella. Right. Cheatham was found beaten to death, presumably by the Tammany Hall Tigers – on September 18th, 1810. Don't go speaking bad about our guy. Yeah, we'll show you, pal. <laughs> so uh, 1809 to 1815, interesting time here for our boys in Tammany Hall. They begin to see their power decline a little bit more during this time uh, because the – well, first of all, you got all these immigrants coming into the country. All right? Starting to pour in left and right here. It's not quite – you're expanding the country, okay? And uh, the hall is fiercely uh, considered native or nativist. Now, Dad, what is uh, nativism, especially in their times? Nativism at that time, it has nothing to do with the uh, Native Americans. It has everything to do with what people felt that uh, nativism was a, an idea or a suggestion that, hey, we got enough immigrants. You know, we, we, the, the America is now having a huge influx uh, of an immigrant wave and these people just felt that we got enough immigrants. Uh, we're good. If you weren't part of the founding fathers, if you will, the 13 original colonies, stay out. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll take care of ourselves. And, um, you know, they, they were very ex- exclusive or exclusionary um, to anybody else coming in. So basically, if you weren't white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, um, there was no need for you to apply. Now, uh, keep in mind, too, these guys had no idea what Selma Hayek looked like. So that's why they were – they didn't know you could be bringing that into the country. Yeah, right. Well, wait a minute. I think she's – yeah. We might want to rethink uh, – did I say all immigrants? No, wait a minute. Yeah, like uh, not all of them, but we will bring in – oh, and a classic. Ming's bringing up uh, Selma and uh, Dogma and uh, – oh, from uh, – oh, gosh, she's great in everything. That's she the certainly problem. passes the eye test, that's for sure. Yeah, so we need to be bringing more of those in, all right? And I guess Norwegian neurosurgeons. But uh, that being said, in order to keep their power, Tammany began uh, towing uh, the Democratic-Republican line even more so than before, okay? So now uh, until – because they're trying to like get things together here because they're losing their power. They realize like, all right, we got to be a little bit more appealing if we can. Uh, that is until DeWitt Clinton decides to run for president. They immediately call him a traitor. And they accused DeWitt uh, of, and his family of trying to start their own aristocracy in America. Now, this is interesting because Democrat Republicans agreed that DeWitt's actions showed that he was just as bad, if not worse, than this Tammany Hall he's always going on and bitching about. So it's uh, – you know, you can be – you just have to look slightly better than your enemy. That's the number one That's rule right. of politics. Right. You don't have to be clean. You just have right. to be slightly cleaner. But uh, now Tammany's able to gain many Federalist supporters from the other side of the argument because – uh, people hear Democratic Republicans and they they put things on that. But the Democratic Republicans were similar to uh, what they believed is that they were kind of a states' rights people. Um, they believed in uh, – they were concerned about the idea of a national bank, which the Federalists, Alexander Hamilton, was all in favor of. So if you want to break it down this way, Federalists followed the Hamilton example for a lot of things there. Mm-hmm. And then uh, uh, contrary to that, the Democratic Republicans was going to be what Jefferson was all about. Right. So it broke down. It was similar that way. It wasn't quite Republicans, Democrats like we know it today. The parties change lines every 30 years or so like we talked about. Um, But uh, now that we've covered that part, uh, they're able to gain a bunch of Federalist supporters. So reaching across the aisle for Tammany Hall because they decide to go ahead and do uh, what's the most American thing you can do? You can support the troops, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And the War of 1812 is just coming up, right? Exactly. So now the Federalists, uh, they're supporting um, the War of 1812, and Tammany just throws it all behind there. Because that is the one thing I will say this about New York. People always say New York City is – it's a liberal – I mean everybody's liberal for the most part over there. But the best I've ever been treated in my life was uh, the Henry Hudson Festival when my ship, the USS Kearney, was in port. And I walked around with my buddies Larry Madison and Daryl Tate, who are both listeners. <laughs> There's a shout out. <laughs> and we walked around in uh, our Navy uniforms, and we could not buy a drink. And it was insane. We went to Yankee Tavern in the Bronx, and I think it was about a $120 bill uh, of just the free shots that were given to us. 
And those guys were so drunk that we had to had be driven back to those the Those guys. You weren't, but uh, those guys. No, I, 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 those guys, they had a real good time. They didn't know how to pace themselves on that one. I was getting out of the Navy the next day. I had to be sober when you guys showed up. But uh, yeah, so um, New York does love uh, love the troops and everything like that. They're amazing that way to this day. But uh, here's what wound up happening. Um, they started making this move. They said, uh, this is the Tammany way of doing politics. We're going to turn away support from other parties. Okay, So they're going to attract more people over here. And what they're going to do is they're going to reward their new members. So, you know, if you're if you're loyal to something, that's cool. But if you get brought into something else, like, oh, hey, see what you've been missing out on, buddy? You right. know, come on down and party yeah. with the Deltas. And you have, a, <laughs> and if you have a diminishing uh, base, uh, it's time to start looking for new membership. So exactly, where are you find that. Now, um, even with all the support that they gained, uh, they finally have a chance to beat Dewitt here. They actually got a guy named John Ferguson elected as mayor of New York City, uh, which upset uh, Dewitt. But Duet then just comes back and wins governor. All right, you beat him at being mayor, he's going to come back as governor. And the reason he was because he got so popular because of the fucking Erie Canal. He actually created the Erie Canal. Is that correct, Ed? Yeah, he was he was a, a big time uh, proponent of the Erie Canal, which was a huge economic uh, boom to um, the entire state. So he's he's making a lot of friends with the with the Erie Canal. Again, we're we're back in the day. We nowadays we think a canal, big whoop. You know, it's a it's a, like a man-made stream, but that was the major way of moving goods and people and everything else. And uh, economically, that was that was huge for uh, New York State and, and allowed people to go further west into uh, you know uncharted territories or new developing uh, properties. So Erie Canal was was big. I like to imagine like a uh, infomercial thing where it's like, uh, well, certainly this, the amazing Sawzall can't cut through this. And then it's just creating the Erie Canal. Yeah. <laughs> um, like a dog too. I mean, uh, it, it provided jobs it, it, and it provided transport and with uh, the promise good. of increased commerce. Absolutely. So super popular. He goes ahead and he wins uh, the election uh, for governor. He's now the uh, sixth governor of all time. The first governor being his own uncle, George, as we referred to earlier. Right. And now that when you're governor, if you thought this guy was a pain in the ass for Tammany as mayor, now he's your fucking governor. Yeah. I mean, Jesus. Now he just slid, not sideways, but upward. Yeah, it's like the guy you hate winds up being your supervisor now. Right. But uh, And even today, I mean, how many people from New York City are not enthralled with what's going on in Albany? So, I mean, it's, uh, it's uh, there's always a, a back and forth between the city and and you know, what we would call upstate or Albany. Very true. And they, uh, that's uh, the other weird caveat with that is that uh, technically if you talk to uh, uh, New Yorkers up in Albany, the only New York football team is the Buffalo Bills. Yeah, the rest of it right. is just those kids from Jersey. Yeah. So, But, uh, well, now uh, Tammany had to learn from this defeat. Okay, DeWitt had won the election due to his ability to appeal to the immigrants that were coming into the country. So uh, now this is something that Tammany taps into and has become forever known for, okay? Um, now, uh, Ming and I have a mutual friend in uh, Brian O'Halloran, the, the wonderful actor from uh, Clerks and many other things, a good friend of both of ours. I always think of uh, – because Brian's first generation, all right? So I always think – whenever I picture the Irish coming into America, I always picture George Carlin and Brian O'Halloran walking <laughs> off a boat together. <laughs> but, Welcome uh, to America. Yeah, so they're coming over in waves now, and they're actually so angry that they can't be members of Tammany Hall. It's almost like a thing where, you, you sure you want to be a member of this? Like, but you told me I can't, so now I have to. Right. Well, it was a closed shop. I mean, if, if um, the largest immigrant wave at the time is um, the Irish, and 90% of those are Irish Catholic, and the other um, very large immigrant wave is Germans, and they just happen to be Catholic as well. So you have Irish Catholic and German Catholic immigrating into the United States. New York City was probably the, the largest uh, port of call or entry point, and you have this huge influx. Uh, but because they're Catholic, uh, originally they were not allowed to come into uh, the Tammany Hall simply by uh, – you know, prejudice of, of religion. Um, but now... Now, this isn't a Sunni Shoe, uh, Shiite thing. This is... The reason why the Protestants don't like the Catholics is because you just defeated the the king of England to create your own country. We're not even 100 years old yet. Yeah. Um, you just defeated uh, the king in England so that you don't have to deal with a king and you know, aristocracy anymore. And then these people are coming in who worship a king in a pointy white hat in the Vatican. Well, yeah, it, it, it's a whole lot more than that. But, yeah, I, I, I hear you. There was a fear that 
if you were a Catholic, you were your number one allegiance was going to be to the Pope and not to uh, any government or any king, and uh, there was that concern. But uh, I think it's uh, there's it, it's a whole lot deeper than that too, especially for the Irish. That's going back to uh, um, you know leaving Ireland. You had absolutely zero rights. You were basically a serf, which was. You know, some people feel to be a serf, you were you were worse off than being a slave because, with a, at least a slave, the master was going to try to keep you alive because <laughs> you were you were property. Um, where a serf on uh, on the tenant farmer system in in Ireland at the time, uh, you were just a just a nuisance, a problem, really, more than anything else. Well, there's a, some brutal stuff too about the Irish coming over around this time because they're also coming over as indentured servants, which means you got to get, you know, you're only property for three to five years or however long the term would have been. Um, but if you were a slave, they owned you your entire life, so they'd want to take care of you to get the most out of their investment. But if you only got three years and somebody's got to scrape the barnacles off right. the side of the boat. You're a rental. <laughs> yeah, we beat you up like an Avis rent-a-car. That's right. But Beat you like a rented mule. Well, uh, now what they decide, because now upon violence and desperation for to keep their own power, Tammany Hall finally starts allowing Irish immigrants in and allowing them to become full members. Uh, the Irish, like we said, biggest immigration wave of the time. Uh, upon their arrival in the hall, they've been forever associated with it. Okay, Tammany Hall is now. When you think of it, you do think of you know the Irish to a degree. Uh, Dewitt died in 1828, largely winning most of his feud with Tammany Hall, but never reaching the presidency become of them. It's kind of like when a team beats the Super Bowl champions, but they still have a losing record. You can feel good about yourself, but we don't quite know why. Yeah, at least we beat those guys. Exactly. Well, uh, that's 1828 when he dies. Now, uh, 1828, that same year, presidential nominee, Andrew Jackson, old hickory himself, arrives Andy, in New York Andy, City. Who does have Irish heritage, uh, but from an earlier uh, immigrant wave, which was more the, the Scotch-Irish, but uh, that was a, that's another whole suitcase that has to be unpacked. Well, but in an interesting way, he is um, of Scotch-Irish. Yeah. yeah, he's Scotch-Irish. <laughs> um, but what's fascinating about him is that Andrew Jackson is the first president to ever be born in America. Everybody else was born as English uh, uh, under the sovereignty of England. Right. So that makes Andrew he's Jackson. one of our own. This is our first guy. That's why he's an important president. There's a lot of really terrible shit that he does later. But, <laughs> yeah. But um, Andrew Jackson arrives in New York City to meet with the Tammany Sachems in order to secure their endorsement. Okay. Now, Tammany has agreed to uh, go ahead and support him as long as Jackson gives them control of the allocation of several government jobs. Dad, does that sound like that spoil system we yeah, were talking about? a little bit, a little bit. You know, that uh, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. We'll make sure that if I win this thing, we'll, we'll, we'll take care of you down the road. <laughs> so he goes ahead. Uh, now, this power that they give him, because they agree to it, and Jackson goes on and wins the election. Um, Jackson was one of the most popular presidents of all time, too. Uh, I mean, people were – that was the people's office. That's how they looked at it. Um, but uh, now with the new power that they were uh, given by being allowed to control the allocation of these government jobs. Uh, yeah, the spoil system really uh, really takes off with, with Andy Jackson because he does win. And in 1829, uh, he becomes a, a systematic rotation that uh, um, whoever was in that government job prior to Andy showing up, um, you're out, and I'm going to appoint my guy to that. And you know, we think of the government, the federal government today. I mean, it's huge. It's huge. It's probably one of the largest employers, if not the largest employer, in in the United States. Um, back then, not quite <laughs> to that extent, but Andy Jackson really ticks off a lot of people because he begins this whole system of rotation. That uh, after four years, you're out, um, and if you were there. When I got here, uh, it could be that you're going to be out and I'm going to put my own guy in there. So, again, it's not a merit system by any stretch of the imagination. It's totally – it's not what you know. It's who you know. And if you were buds or helped Andy get into the office, then Andy now is going to take care of you. Which is interesting. Right? I mean, we're seeing it uh, to this day. Almost everybody brings in their own people. Right for when you get a big you know, elected office kind of a thing there, and it yeah, this sense. is more than policy though. This is more than than you know, handpicking your own cabinet and stuff. This is just government positions that 
are not going to set any new policy or anything, but hey, it's a job, so and it, and it could become a very well-paying job or have some cronyism or uh, some ways of making uh, making gains for yourself. That uh, so it wasn't always integrity-driven, <laughs> but here's the example you're showing: is that in America. Andrew Jackson, who was born in a, a log cabin, is now president of the United States. Yep. And all these immigrants that are coming over. The American dream. Who, who might not have uh, education or means or anything like that are starting to realize, well, if you work for the government, that's not such a bad job to have. So around the time frame, too, of uh, Irish Catholic need not apply, now you're starting to get into, uh, well, the government will take us. Right. So the government's giving all these posts out and stuff. Now, uh, this is where the influence of Tammany gets to uh, – Probably its height as we're starting to get into here. I mean they're becoming – they've been around for a long time, but they're never been more powerful than they're starting to become at this point. Um, through the use of ward bosses, a.k.a. capos, if you're going from a mafia yeah. sense, okay? That's really what it, this it was. It goes back to the political machine that, uh, yeah, different wards would be set up and somebody would be appointed to be in charge of that particular ward. So you were the ward captain, if you will, or the, or the capo. And, yep, there, uh, was, uh, there was Paulie Walnuts, Ralphie Cifaretto. That's right. There you go. Silvio Dante. Don't forget Big Pussy. And he they, sleeps yeah, with the fishes. <laughs> but uh. but uh, so they go ahead and um, now Tammany Hall is able to consolidate its power amongst the Irish immigrants who had been arriving in mass since the 1840s to escape the potato famine. Uh, not what I, we're not going to go too crazy into this here, but I do want you to because I know that you've read heavy on this, as is my uncle Robert. <laughs> yeah, uh, great Irish potato famine. Now, if I'm uh, the average person is going to sit there and be like, "Oh, they only grew potatoes, and then when they didn't have potatoes, they had to leave because there was no potatoes." Yeah. Well, it was a little, a little more than that. Um, the whole, the whole system, um, and now we're kind of intermingling English history, Irish history, Scottish history, Welsh history, and American history. And, you know, America truly does become the whole melting pot. But at that time, uh, in the 1840s, uh, Irish Catholic could not own their own property, could not vote, could not uh, own a gun, could not own a horse, uh, what they call the penal laws. No, don't make a dick joke at this point. But the penal laws forbid all of that. So, uh any property that was owned by Irish Catholic was taken away from them and given to typically a, a, an English landlord. So now you have all these people that were living on the land and they became tenant farmers, uh, meaning that they would be raising the crops for the landlord and they were given a very small plot of land that they could raise their own foodstuffs to survive on. Um, and it was really like a surf uh, system from medieval times that uh, um, you were spending the vast majority of your day working for the for the tenants' crops. Meanwhile, you'd have to put in some crop that pretty much could tend to itself, which was the potato. Um, very it was very similar to sharecropping too, which Share, was uh, absolutely, what we, they right. try to appease the uh, black slaves with in a post-Civil War South. Right. So very, that's very the same similar, level. The same level. The same level. Right. Yeah, because people don't realize that uh, the Irish are the Puerto Ricans of Europe. Okay. Yeah. They're, they're <laughs> not well. <laughs> that was uh, an analogy that was that was given. Um, anyhow, um, now you have a huge. Uh, part of the Irish population is now totally dependent on the potato simply because with potatoes, you stick them in the ground in the springtime. They pretty much grow on their own. Um, they are um, very prolific in that you get a lot of potatoes from one plant, and it's a nutritious kind of a thing. Uh, you know, there was estimates that at the time that a grown man would probably be uh, – a grown Irishman would probably be eating about 12 pounds of potatoes a day. So you had potatoes for breakfast, potatoes for lunch, and potatoes for dinner. Hang on, that's hash browns, <laughs> then french fries, yeah, well, then, then potato well, pie. <laughs> and you can get uh, um, you know, the, the shrimp, the, the 80 different ways that Bubba Gump could uh, Well, that was all kind of ways to make a potato. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, but basically, it was just a uh, you know uh, um, hand-to-mouth existence, literally. That uh, and then with the um, there was a potato blight that the uh, the potato crop just completely collapsed. So now you've got all of these um, people, millions of people in Ireland, have nothing to eat. Um, 
and cannot pay the rent. Um, although you know people th- call it the pot- the Great Potato Famine, um, that was the only thing that really failed. It wasn't really a famine because there was plenty of foodstuffs that were being grown, but that was on the but landlord. not for you. <laughs> that was on the landlord's uh, property, not on yours, because you couldn't afford to grow all that other stuff. And you know, there's there's reports that a lot of these foodstuffs were taken out of Ireland that could have fed the people, um, but they were removed from Ireland to England under military escort for fear. Because well, the, the United States was sending food over. Yeah, that was another whole aspect too that. Uh, once the United States realized how bad off the uh, the Irish were, that there were um, relief groups that were set up that were sending over um, corn for the most part because America was big on corn. However, the corn was not part of the Irish diet. And then English laws um, even got their fingers into that pie that um, laws were then passed that any aid that was sent into Ireland had to go into English ports first so that the English could take a percentage off of it and then ship from England to Ireland on English merchant ships so that they could take a percentage out of the thing. So by the time it actually got down to the starving people, there wasn't a whole lot. Uh, it wasn't a whole lot to go around, but uh, we're going to get back to a lighter topic here in a second too. Yeah. I want to make sure people understood that one part because, I mean, growing up as a kid, we listened to the Irish radio hour in the back of your van while you'd be driving around on a Sunday or something like that, and these are the most depressing songs. <laughs> you think Hank Williams Jr. can make you cry talking about how his baby ain't coming <laughs> home right. no more and his dog died and his somebody truck won't done start. somebody wrong song. We got it. We got one that'll top uh, that. I'm sitting there like, and and my child died in my arms as I swam That's him out to the river to drown my daughter because we couldn't have no more food. Uh, we should have brought O'Halloran in for this episode. <laughs> but uh, now, so they're coming over in mass, uh, huge immigration wave. Yeah, and, I mean, they're, uh, they're leaving absolute destitution. So, I mean, they're, they're coming in on uh, what they were calling as coffin ships. Basically, uh, they were packing them into these ships that, eh, maybe it makes it to America, maybe it not. But even if it doesn't, if they all drown at sea, well, it's that many more Irish that we got rid of. Anyhow, that, that's not our problem. Send them over to America and see what happens over yeah, there. Yeah, we still liked Ireland at this time. Uh, or we, we didn't quite like them yet, but this was uh, – we didn't realize what we were starting with you 2 just yeah, yet. I mean, you have, you have all these Irish immigrants who are absolutely – whatever they're wearing on their back, literally, they're wearing rags. Uh, you know, if they didn't die of typhus or anything else in the coffin ships along the way, now they're arriving in – in uh, in America. So, in New York what would City. you want if you wanted to? Uh, it, what what would be your dream if you were arriving in America for them to hand you when you're walking off the boat in these destitute conditions? Well, What's the kind of shit that would warm your? <laughs> the first thing is something to eat. So uh, food. Got yeah. It. Now, food, what food, are you going to do for a living while you're over shelter there? Shelter and uh, and a job and roof over your head. And okay. Mr. Mr. Tammany Hall. Uh, uh, they were Johnny on the spot with that one. Um, New York at the time had one of the most lax citizenship requirements. Um, you know, there's a there's a scene in the movie uh, The Gangs of New York where the immigrants are coming off the ship, and as they're walking down the pier, um, there's somebody there to have them sign up as uh, uh, infantrymen in the in the Union Army. Um, you know, this is a little later, and this is in the 1860s. We're still talking in the 1840s here with, with uh, Tammany's uh, timeline. <clears throat> but New York at the time had one of the loosest citizenship requirements. Basically, you could arrive in New York and on that very same day become a U.S. citizen if you're— uh, if you were prime eligible, if you're, <laughs> yeah, if you were prime eligible, and uh, Mr. Tammany, one, one of the Tammany ward bosses or one of the Tammany representatives is there to kind of help you along your way. They'll give you a place to give you something to eat, give you a place to 
to stay and, uh, you know. It was a rudimentary welfare type system. So this is welfare before. This is a pre-New Deal America, too, which people have to remember. This is an early soup kitchen type of a thing, but at least it's something to eat. Yeah, they're going to provide you jobs, uh, food, citizenship, shelter, a little bit of medical care if you needed it. All in exchange that, hey, remember, you're going to vote Tammany at the end of this, right? You don't even know what voting is. Right. All right? You've never had the opportunity to vote. So now yeah. somebody's telling me, hey, I'm an American citizen and I have the right to vote. And I never had that in the old country because I happened to be Catholic and I was happened to be Irish. So there's two strikes against me right there that I wasn't allowed to vote. Well, it's like I told you. I, I, I dated a girl from Ireland uh, for a while. You know, we dated for a couple of months and everything. And she was from Ireland herself, and I was so proud to be Irish growing up, you know, with the heritage that you taught me and everything. Uh, after dating her, though, uh, I have never been more proud to also be English. <laughs> <laughs> so, a little messed up over there. No, she's a good girl, man. But uh, so um, they would teach them how to be American. That was the other thing. Which nowadays, if you want to come to America, all you have to know is how to say, uh, you know, a couple of basic things. Yeah, pretty much. Twitter, the internet's kind of connected the world in a different way this way, but. Uh, my point is, in 1850, over 130,000 Irish have arrived in New York City, and they now make up 34% of the vote. It's a voting block. If you can put together 34% of the voting uh, of the voters and all vote Tammany, that's, that's what you call a political machine. Could right you there. imagine how friggin' popular – because one of the wards that was down there, a guy named George Washington Plunkett. Okay, great name, by the way, if you're going to name yourself George Washington Plunkett. Uh, he was essentially the better call Saul of the five points, okay? He got drunks out of jail. Oh, better call Saul. You know, need shelter for the homeless? You better call Saul. Uh, paid the poor people's rent, attended bar mitzvahs, weddings, funerals, and helped offer them that nice crooked little path to citizenship. So – very popular guy there. Now, in 1854, Tammany scores its greatest victory yet. Now, this is the part where – when we try to do this story, I wanted to just do uh, a couple of names from the history of Tammany Hall. But Tammany Hall had to be covered because you have to unpack how fucked up all this stuff is. And we're going to now get to one specific person we're going to focus on here to end this first of three episodes. Um, 1854, greatest victory yet. One of the sachems, if you will – of Tammany Hall, Fernando Wood has become the mayor of New York City. So Our guy is now the mayor. That's right. DeWitt Clinton kicks the shit out of us at every turn until it's finally time to get Fernando Wood in there. This kicks off 80 years of political domination for the Tammany Tigers. Okay. Now, Wood as mayor is fascinating. First of all, Ming, when you hear the name Fernando, uh, where do you think this guy's from? Uh, you know, in Spain, uh, you know, maybe a Latin American country. Uh, right. You think, yeah. oh, we got diversity, right? Sure. Nope. English, Irish kid. <laughs> wow. Okay. They just, his parents wanted to be different. His okay. mother was fascinated uh, by a novel, uh, a Spanish novel that took place in Spain, obviously, and the name Fernando stuck out there. So she named her kid Fernando. She really liked Fernando. So, okay. Her and, and Abba. Yeah. <laughs> with the name Fernando. Okay. Well, there you go. Well, there what makes go. you laugh is because you hear Fernando and you're like, oh, cool. That's that's uh, we're getting a little bit of uh, you know some diversity back here. It's almost as if I named my kid Ming, okay, and now I have a little blonde hair, blue eyed kid running around saying his name is Ming. But so, Wood's an interesting guy. He attempts to fix the corruption of the municipal police department of the city of New York, but the Munis, as they were known, uh, are Munis, largely the municipal police. Yes, department. the municipal police, the Munis, we'll call them for short here were largely Tammany members and or supporters of uh, what they were doing over there. So everybody likes the Munis. Uh, the Munis rather like Tammany, I should say. Um, now, in 1857, three years after being elected to his first term, the New York State legislature, who was opposed to him completely, they even shortened his first term and they kept trying to do things to you know usurp his power. They did not like Mr. Fernando Wood. Okay? No, he, was, he was definitely uh, Tammany's uh, number one. And as far as the police department, again, what we would now call civil service jobs were all uh, appointees by the by the Tammany machine. So uh, if you're an immigrant and you can't read or write, well, you know what? We'll put you into sanitation. Uh, if, uh, you know, we, we, we'll, we'll find a job for you somewhere that, hey, uh, if you have nothing and, you know, if you got a, a job, that's that's huge. I mean, that, that's that's your way out. That's your way up the ladder. That those opportunities were never given to you back in the old country. And this is the, literally this is the start of the stereotype of Irish cops and firemen right around this time frame. It all stems from Tammany Hall. Absolutely. As the great Colin Quinn says, one of my favorite comics of all time, he uh, 
he wrote in his book, um, the coloring book, that Irish uh, – the Irish make great cops because the Irish love rules because they've never had rules to enforce before. <laughs> they just got – you know what I mean? So they would lo- that's why they love the church because there's rules to the church. You know what I mean? But um, he loved all that stuff. But um, now what New York State legislature goes ahead and does is in order to get rid of the corrupt municipal police that are serving Wood and Tammany Hall's interest out on the streets, they decide they're going to create something known as the Metropolitan Police. All right, and in that they put uh, as the superintendent the very well respected Mr. Frederick Talmage. Okay, is going to be the guy that's going to take over that, and this is their way of kicking Fernando Wood in the balls and just saying, "Hey, dude, you're not getting shit done." All right. Again, it's a whole uh, New York City versus Albany uh, kind of back and forth. Very much so. So now the New York legislature is making sure that uh, Mr. Wood's power is. Uh, limited, and he's saying, "Well, we're going to get rid of the Metropolitan Police, and we're going to bring in our, our uh, a new police force to take over." Now, this is where it gets even crazier. So, um, Wood now refuses to disband the municipal police, even violating a Supreme Court ruling ordering him to do so. Okay, municipal police are out, Metropolitan Police are in. Now, there is some split between the two parties, like you were telling me. There are some municipal guys that go over to the Metro side. And then there are some guys from Metro that weren't really working municipally yet, but they were brought in from other places. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't completely two separate identities. Uh, there was people from the Metropolitan Police Department that then went over to the, to the other side. Um, but you know, there was a huge faction that was going to stay loyal to, the, to Tammany. I mean, if Tammany gave you your job, gave you your elevation, gave you the opportunity to now become a police captain from a lowly uh, patrolman to mm-hmm. now you're a captain, and it all because of uh, Tammany. <laughs> you're going to have some allegiance to Tammany. Without a doubt. And uh, now, just for the numbers' sake here, both sides number in the hundreds. They both number in the hundreds. So municipal police have a couple hundred people behind them, and the metropolitan police have a couple hundred behind them. Now, Captain Walling who was uh, moved over from the uh, sorry moved from the municipal police over to the metropolitan police is sent over to arrest Fernando Wood for refusing to disband the municipal police department so he goes down to city hall okay and attempts to forcefully arrest Fernando Wood and promptly gets tossed out on his ass <laughs> by 300 municipal cops who are now occupying city hall literally new york city hall manhattan okay where we're going to do the lighting of the Christmas tree and all this other shit is now occupied like a fort, like Fort Apache. Yep. And they're sitting there. Upon seeing this, 50 metropolitan cops with billy clubs stormed City Hall in order to arrest Wood and got the shit kicked out of them by the munis who completely surrounded them in what would become known as the New York City police riot. Okay. 52 people injured, by the way. This was not like a, oh, you know, we talk about the political discourse now of like, you know, the, the Antifa and all the other, the crazy right-wing groups and shit. Um, those guys are going to occasionally throw a bike lock at each other. These cops are throwing down. The two police departments are fighting each other. Yeah, right. Right. So when you have 52 people injured, the National Guard has to get called in. Okay. And Fernando Wood now accepts his arrest. Yeah, you can't send in the cops because the cops are the ones that are fighting. So who do you send in? Oh, exactly. <laughs> well, now you call up the state militia. Uh, so they call up the state militia, the, a.k.a. the National Guard. They go ahead and bring them in. And uh, Fernando Wood accepts his arrest All right, in order to end the violence. And then he goes back and he pays his nominal fine for inciting a riot. By the way, inciting a riot is the reason why Guns N' Roses isn't allowed to play Mississippi because Axl Rose was accused of inciting a riot over there. Um, so pretty much Woodstock 99 is going on outside of the city hall over here. And uh, Fernando Wood uh, goes, pays his fine, and returns right back to office, by the way. Okay. And yeah, by the way, when he went to, uh, went to trial, um, all the judges <laughs> – were Tammany Hall appointees, <laughs> so <laughs> they didn't. The, the, the fine wasn't all that, uh, all that severe. Oh, uh, they're so good. It's a <laughs> well. Now uh, both police forces have refused to resign or go away. So now this feud is escalating deep into the summer of '87. If I could go back in time, uh, people always ask you this: What time period would you go back to? If I could see New York City, the summer of 1857. This is the most fascinating thing I could possibly imagine. Uh, Ming, this is ridiculous, dude. This is uh, the two departments would contradict arrests for each other. So I'm from the municipal police, okay, and my father's from the metropolitan police. We see you committing a crime. 
I arrest you from the municipal police. Hey, you're under arrest by order of the municipal police. And my father walks up on the other side and says, you're released according to the Metropolitan Police. That's right. But, Be on your way. What a time. <laughs> <laughs> what a time. Yeah. Uh, even better now, dude, this is because we're going to wrap up here in a second. But, even but before, I, before all charges are dismissed, you better make sure that you vote Tammany. Oh, of course. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Tammany's got my vote, even That's even right. now. So, which is even crazier too, because now uh, they would dispute. They, cops would often fight on the streets for the right to interfere with a crime that was taking place. So, literally, there's somebody busting your window and stealing your flat screen, and the two cops are going to show up and sit here and be like, "Hey, hey, uh, this is mine. This is yours. No, come on, this is mine." They're, now they're duking it out over jurisdiction. You're not. The Supreme Court says you don't exist anymore. <laughs> so they're fighting each other on that stuff. Now. Uh, during this, um, it actually allows uh, many gangs who had sympathies with Tammany and a lot of them – a lot of gang members, by the way, were also in the municipal police. That, that was their way of kind of infiltrating. But um, they enjoyed the feud between the Metropolitan Police and the Munis. By the way, if you ever wanted to know uh, what the nickname for the Metropolitan Police was, the Mets. The Mets Let's stink. Go Mets. <laughs> Uh, but uh, we wanted to bring in my buddy who's a diehard Mets fan. Swinging one. the billy clubs, or was that, or swinging the bats, or uh, just being largely ineffective. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, they go and they bring in the uh, the Mets versus the Munis here. They're fighting nonstop, but the gangs are loving this because now the gangs in New York, literally the gangs of New York, the Dead Rabbits, the Bowery Boys, the Bill the Butcher types, the Leo DiCaprio, everything from that movie. They're allowed to do whatever they want in the five points. That's real. That's because the cops are fighting each other. Yeah, that wasn't movies. That was uh, that was the real deal. Well, uh, now it, they did love it too. Now, during the most massive free for all brawl in the New York City history, this is a beef between the Dead Rabbits, who are a gang. the gang, the ga- a gang that are yeah, literally Dead Rabbits fighting. <laughs> the Dead Rabbits, an Irish gang, okay, who opposed the nativists and was very pro Tammany Hall, okay. So that gang is going to go uh, storm the headquarters of the Bowery Boys, who were the uh, natives. Uh, if you don't like it, you can leave. You right. know, picture like a nice Sam Elliott kind of a thing. Right. But the Bill the Butcher character is actually William Poole, who was a Bowery Boy. Right. The so, leader of the Bowery Boys. And they did not like these dirty immigrants coming in here and ruining his country. So now this is the best part. They get into this huge battle, all right, and this huge fight's going a medieval style war between these gangs is taking place on the streets of Manhattan. Literally that opening scene from Gangs of New York. The Metropolitan Police, who are brought in by the New York State Legislature, that are not the Tammany Hall guys, they try to break the fight up and restore the order. And now both sides of the gangs that are fighting both start kicking their shit out right. of the Metropolitan Police. Right. Okay? You're spoiling our fun. Yeah, because if there's one thing we can agree on in New York, the Mets suck. <laughs> So they go ahead and they're kicking the shit out of uh, uh, these metropolitan cops now. And the municipal police are looking on from the distance and are rumored to have said, oh, that looks like a metropolitan problem, if you ask me. <laughs> you guys got jurisdiction on this one. Yeah, yeah. You guys handle this one. You're right, you know. But uh, in addition to causing a near civil war in his own city between these two rival police departments, Fernando Wood is also a fierce opponent of Abraham Lincoln. And he's against the 13th Amendment, which would go ahead and free the slaves. Now – his argument was, how can they uh, deal with um, the current problems that they have right now? How can they bring in having to deal with the slavery issue with all these new free like, – and he, he's pretty much coming at it from the immigrant standpoint. We can't even take care of the immigrants we have now. How are we going to deal with new immigrants? You right. know? And he also does not want um, the cotton trade, the very lucrative cotton trade to be interrupted down south. And he actually attempts to have New York City secede from the union right. and declare itself a free city. A free city. Kind of a safe haven for uh, for everybody. Yeah, that uh, we we couldn't take care of the, the the white immigrants that we're trying to deal with, and now you can kind of tell me we're going to expand the the labor pool with by freeing the blacks that uh, we can't take care of. Them. Well, you want to call up some racism real quick? Go tell the newly arrived immigrants that that uh, the, all the shit that they just went through. And all the, the food they're getting and the shelter and services, hey, we're finally taking – you finally got you know a roof over your head. Oh, also, we're going to give it to you know these new slaves now. You don't get that anymore. Right. You're going to instantly create this, uh, this need for survival, not even based on facts, manipulation, pure sure. manipulation. But that is Fernando Wood here. Now, if the two police departments in the city of New York are fighting each other and the gangs are pretty much running majority of the, uh, you know, the action on the streets – 
That's got to be the most interesting part of Tammany Hall, right? Well, <laughs> tune in next week. <laughs> exactly. So we're hitting the hour mark on this one. We got to do uh, the, the next part of it, which is absolutely fascinating. If you know anything about uh, Tammany Hall, you would know that the name that is synonymous with that is Boss Tweed. Okay. So we're going to cover the Boss Tweed thing here in the next episode. And like I said, this is the first time. This, we're very ambitious with this project. But this is uh, the conclusion of our first episode on Tammany Hall. And as always, I want to thank Mike and Ming over at uh, Shared Universe. You guys are awesome, man. I want to thank my father for making me love history here. There you go. And real quick, if I can plug a couple of stand updates. Just had the time of my life, man. I was on stage with David Tell over at the Stress Factory uh, on Friday. I mean, that's the second time I've gotten a chance to work with him. He's just such a great guy, man. Um, I was down at the Jacksonville Comedy Zone recently, the first place I ever did comedy. That was a great time over there, man. Uh, but uh, actually, this the. Friday the 30th, I'm going to be down in Atlantic Highlands uh, on a couple of on a show with a good friend of mine, Chris Johnston, awesome comic, and my friend Lynette Palladino. We're both going to be down there in uh, Atlantic Highlands. And um, I'm going to go ahead and plug it now if I can. But uh, in December, the week leading up to Christmas, the 20th through the 22nd, I believe, unless I get kicked off the show or just drop down to a host, um, <laughs> that I'm going to be down at Uncle Vinny's Comedy Club opening up for uh, one of the best in the business, Big Jay Okerson from Legion of Skanks. So... Very excited about that one here, guys. That is the end of part one, uh, American Loser, Tammany Hall. Thank you for listening. An American loser the day I was born. An American loser the day I was born. An American loser the day I was born.